0: You know how you listen to a podcast for years and years and years and then you suddenly actually see the faces of the people whose voices you know so well? That's what it was like for me when The Waves agreed to come and do a live broadcast at All About Women 2019. Hosts Christina Cortorucci, June Thomas and Noreen Malone were exactly as I had imagined. And they were joined by playwright and actor Nakia Louie where they talked about everything from where modern rom-coms go wrong to the problems with Australian politics. It was excellent and I hope you enjoy it.
1: Thank you guys so much for coming. What an amazing crowd. Yeah. Um,
0: hello, Australia.
1: Yeah, hello, yeah. Australia. Uh, welcome to The Waves, the live from Sydney edition. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm Christina Cotarucci. I'm a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. And we are recording this episode in beautiful summertime, I guess. Sydney, Australia. Um, We're at this beautiful venue. I want to say it's uh, the Sydney Music Hall. The Sydney Opera House. Opera House. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe our listeners have heard of it. I don't know. Um, Next to me, we've got New York Magazine features editor, Noreen Malone. Hi, Hi, Noreen. Hi, Sydney. Uh, and this, of course, is Slate's senior managing producer of podcasts, June Thomas. Hey. Um, This is a huge honor to be here. We really want to thank the All About Women Festival for having us. It's still surreal to have been brought halfway around the world (laughs) to meet some of our Australian listeners. You guys have emailed us so many great recommendations for guests and for things to do here. We had no idea, I had no idea, I should use an I statement, how many incredible Australian (laughs) listeners we have. So thank you guys so much for coming. We have a great show planned for today. We're gonna start off with a review of Isn't It Romantic? A romantic comedy about romantic comedies starring two Australian leads, Rebel Wilson and Liam Hemsworth. Not the flagship Hemsworth. (laughs) 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 But a Hemsworth nonetheless. We wanted you to be able to relate, so we went
0: Hemsworth. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> we try to have a little, like, something Australian every segment. Uh, we also have a special guest today, Nikia Louie. Nice. So many of you <laughs> requested her. We're so lucky that she was able to come on her day off from the play that she's currently staging and starring in right here at the Sydney Opera House. It's called How to Rule the World. We saw it yesterday, it was fantabulous. So we're gonna talk to Nikki about the play, indigenous politics, and making comedy that explores race and gender. For our third segment, we're gonna talk about cancel culture and specifically two young adult fiction works who have, uh, their authors have recently pulled their books from publication after YA fans said they were problematic. And for our Slate Plus segment today, we're going to take questions from you. So get your is it sexist questions ready. Hopefully nothing sexist happens to you during the show. But if it does, that would be a great thing to bring up. (laughs) Uh, And we'll tell you how sexist it is or is not. All right. Isn't it romantic? Mm. Uh, So the film, it came out last month in the States. I think in Australia, it's going straight to Netflix. Um, June, why don't you tell us a little bit about it?
0: Well, Rebel Wilson stars. She is an Australian architect in New York. I'm sure there's tons of those. <laughs> and she is, well, she doesn't seem like, I don't, it's really hard to tell if she enjoys her life. She kind of has a crummy apartment, but it's a semi-realistic apartment. Her dog doesn't obey her. <laughs> like, the people at the office, like, she's actually friendly with her assistant, so obviously there's something up there. Mm-hmm. And then she gets hit on the head in my least favorite uh, rom-com trope and finds herself in a New York that is smelling of lavender and she finds herself living in all of these negative romantic comedy tropes that she has disparaged and and moaned about. And that is kind of the summary. (laughs) (laughs) But what do you think about it? I mean... I wish these days that we could just let romantic comedies be romantic comedies. I mean, do they have to be like, you know, deconstructions and, uh, you know, breaking it all down? Because in the end, isn't what she lives through, doesn't it suffer from all the same faults that she uh, identifies in romantic comedies? I mean, did
1: you guys like it? Yeah, I mean, that's the point of the movie. She ends up realizing that the things she hated about romantic comedies were actually great, and all she needed to do was love herself, and then she was going to, like, get the great guy who wasn't the guy she thought it was, and I don't know. I don't think it departed too far from romantic comedies. I almost wish that... It, it didn't feel like it had a cogent political view for a movie that was really hitting you over the head, like no pun intended, with the fact that it was trying to make a political statement about romantic comedies. I watched it on Netflix here in
2: Australia and oh, I wow. fell asleep twice um, <laughs> I thought of the movie. I'm not kidding.
0: How much was jet lag? How much was commentary on the movie?
2: <laughs> Combination. Okay. Uh, I, I just hated this movie. Uh, <laughs> and I love romantic comedies. I, I think it, it sort of was playing off of the period of time when romantic comedies had become Mm cliches, right? So the director said, oh, you know, this is an homage to the 80s and 90s, the classic romantic comedies. But I actually think what he had in mind was the period of time in the early aughts when it was all Katherine Heigl and, like, bland, you know, hunky male lead who you can't keep track of them. The plot is forgettable. No one has any actual chemistry or charisma. Nothing is distinct about it. It's just, like, sort of blonde and homogenous. I felt like that was the concept of a romantic comedy that it was playing off of. Like, it wasn't actually getting at what do people connect with in these movies. There was right. so much time spent on, like, the Easter eggs of, like, okay, which reference is this, that there was actually, like, no soul in the movie. Yeah. Like, the the two leads barely had any time on screen together, you know, the, the two who end up together. Yeah. And I just found it, like, why are we in this place with romantic comedies? It's, it's very similar to the plot of... Um, do you guys remember the Amy Schumer movie? That we to yeah, I feel bad. She gets hit it, on the head isn't too. Isn't pretty, I feel yeah. bad. Exactly. Yeah.
0: I'm really concerned. I think that romantic comedies need to really clarify their concussion protocol <laughs> <laughs> because. Like, this, I've had this problem for a long time, like, Singing in the Rain, you know, supposed to be one of the great movies of all time. All I can think about is, like, that slapstick scene where they're, like, throwing around the pieces of wood. Like, I don't remember banging that. people on the head. It makes me crazy. It's, like, <laughs> one of the great scenes in, in movies, and all I can think of, like, don't hit people on the head. It's really not good for them. <laughs>
1: uh, well, that's probably the moral of the story of Isn't It Romantic? <laughs> um, I mean, I did have fun, like trying to identify all the different... Like, the wet streets, which is not something I realized was a trope until I watched Unreal, which is an incredible Lifetime series. Y'all should watch if you haven't. Um, Where it's like they hose down the cobblestones or the pavement to make it look glistening and fresh when (laughs) actually, if you're there, there's, like, shit on the ground or, you know, (laughs) other things that smell bad. Um, Like, I had fun with that. Rebel Wilson is really funny. Um, But also the it helped me realize what actually makes a romantic comedy work, which is just, it's fun to watch two people have chemistry, two charismatic people be charismatic together. And I think both Rebel Wilson and the guy who plays her love interest, um, Adam Devine, They both have a character that they play in every movie, and they play those characters in this movie. So I wasn't it like wasn't fun to watch them together because they were just yeah. both being the same people that they always
0: are. And I don't get how we're supposed to read Adam Devine. Like he's you know, I guess he's supposed to be the schlub, but other than like not having like that swimmer's body thing that the <laughs> minor Helmsworth has, like. <laughs> He's it's not unattractive, like yeah he's not and neither is
1: Rebel Wilson, n- no, and I kind of thought that that was the point that they were like, "Oh, look, one thing that really bothered me, I don't want to just shit on this movie because I you know I did enjoy it, but it's like she transforms in her fake romantic comedy world into like you know beautiful hair and wakes up with makeup already on and like amazing clothes, and then when she comes out of her coma or whatever she's in, again, like with no bruises, or with the anything. Con- concussion um." Like, she continues to blow-dry her hair, and
0: it's like, they are I feel like they're trying to say, like, oh, look, if she just took care of herself, you know? Well, <laughs> exactly. That's what I mean, that it's not really... I understand the point they're trying to make, but the difference between the worlds is they're, it's too small. So they they decry the lack of diversity in romantic comedies, which actually is a thing about every movie set in New York has no people of colour in them, mm. but there's only two people of colour in them, so, like... Mm, Isn't it just the same? So I think it reflects
2: this like geek marvelization of the movie universe in general, right? You can't just have a rom-com that exists on its own. It has to be within a larger universe where there are references to other movies. Like that's the way that studios presume that we all watch movies now, right? Like you can't just be like, a person who's a fan of Notting Hill. You have to be a fan of, like, the larger Julia Roberts universe. <laughs> and then there have to be references to this. <laughs> I just I just think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is that brings people to rom-coms versus what brings people to these other highly successful movies. And I think, like, Hollywood needs to figure out what's going on there. And that's not to say that there haven't been great rom-coms in recent years. Something like The Big Sick, which wasn't yeah. promoted as a classic rom-com, is actually a really interesting twist on it, I think, rather than sort of just looking to straight-up update old ones. I think they're more interesting things to do with, you know, new uh, new visions of what a rom-com is. be. And Crazy Rich Asians, which was a huge hit huge this hit. summer. And so I, I think that, uh,
1: like, this, like you said, Noreen, this particular movie doesn't necessarily feel in conversation with the current rom-com zeitgeist, which is why it felt, like, a little bit out of left field for me. But it does... Feel like there may be a rom-com resurgence happening. We talked about, you know, uh, to all the boys I loved before, which was a huge hit on Netflix, which I loved. Um, so maybe you can make a classic rom-com now. It just it it will avoid some of the pitfalls that this movie is making fun of. Seven years too late. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, should we get on to our interview? Yes. So, Nakia Louie... In the television sketch show Black Comedy. She has written and starred in a scripted comedy series, Kiki and Kitty, which is about a woman who meets her own personified talking vagina. I haven't seen it. I need to see it. I know. I need to see it. She's co hosted the BuzzFeed podcast, Pretty for an Aboriginal, and she's here with us today. Please welcome to the waves, Nakia (laughs) Louie. Fans in the room, clearly. Um, So we saw your play yesterday. Thank you. We had a great time. Um, So the gist of the play, for those of you who haven't seen it, you should all see it. Right. Um, It's these three young progressive Australians of color who decide to get behind or run and uh, basically hold auditions for the, the blandest white guy in the world who they can turn into a political candidate to do their bidding. Um, to basically stop a white supremacist policy from passing in parliament. Um, my first question for you, this is something that I was thinking about the whole time I was watching it. How much were you taking from actual
3: Australian politics? Oh, gosh. I'm starting to think it's a case of how much are they taking from me? Uh, <laughs> which is scary. Um, it, was, it was really interesting. Um, I, I wrote the play because... You know, I'm, I do have a platform, you know, I'm very privileged in that way, but I also, you know, I'm a regular Australian and I sometimes I feel so disconnected from the democratic process and, you know, with a lot of, you know, rhetoric around political systems, what we value as communities changing with leadership, this idea of what democracy looks like and how you can actually impact governance was something that I wanted to explore, um, then looking at people, I know I don't, there was this candidate called Ricky Muir who got in a couple of years ago into Senate. Does anyone remember Ricky Muir? Yes. And he was a really lovely surprise because it was like he was this guy, I think they, they run him, he was like the motor enthusiast party. They just made up this party. <laughs> I, think, I think one of the reasons he got in is this guy uh, who calls himself the preference whisperer. Um, <laughs> kind of had a grudge against someone who was sitting in that seat and was like, well, I'm going to get you out by getting this guy in. Ricky Miller turned out to be a lovely surprise, but so often with talks about policy within Australian politics, a lot of big decisions come down to negotiating within the Senate, and that seems to be made up with a whole heap of kind of fringe value um, candidates. Uh, So I wanted to kind of explore this idea of, like, I can't understand how this system works um, and do that within, yeah, make a play out of it. Um, and then as I was writing the play, certain things were kind of happening that really uh, resembled the play. <laughs> <laughs> you were it was, manifesting it. Yeah, yeah, it was really odd. I was like, am I a psychic? Oh my <laughs> <laughs> um, I come from a long line of Aboriginal psychics. <laughs> I was like, no, we don't. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, it was really difficult in that sense. Um because how do you make fun of a, of a political world that is kind of making fun of itself? I wrote an ad for a conservative candidate called Mervo Thomas in the play, where he kind of eats pies and throws balls and like, like wrote that in the script. And then, um, uh, what's his name? Bob Catter. Uh, he released an ad where they ate pies and threw balls. It was a bit... Yeah,
1: Um, we've got a guy in the States who released an ad in the most recent campaign cycle where he was literally chopping wood, which was a scene from the comedy Veep, which is making fun of the political process. (laughs) Like, same thing. I'm like, oh, did you get your idea from the (laughs) comedy? (laughs) It's
2: like, not a good idea.
3: It's hard. It's hard to, you know, like, really kind of make fun of, of, of that stuff.
2: Well, I kept thinking of the U.S. election, the 2020, like, race for the Democratic nomination, while watching this, I knew nothing about Australian politics, but it just felt like so much of the rhetoric that we hear about the Democratic nomination involves, like, oh, we have to get a white guy to appeal to this certain audience, but he's got to like have our values, and it just felt like um, people are really people are really thinking the way that your your three main characters are thinking in the play.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's you know, it's it's. Um One day I realised a lot of my favourite writers, you know, have been kind of like old white male drunks, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, within theatre, you know, it's been kind of a history of, you know, white males as these, you know, ideal playwrights. And I realised one day, no matter, you know, how drunk I get, no matter how chauvinistic or (laughs) however I get, I will never be that. Um, I would never be that white guy. Yeah. And it was this amazing revelation because it's like, I don't want to be that guy. I am not that guy. But how many people are that guy? Actually, the majority of people aren't that. Um, And also, you know, it's a value system in which we uphold things. So if we look at things as values, then, you know, we don't really, those people at the core who uphold you know, these values that exclude so many of us, they're they're actually the minority and we're the majority. So, for myself, the way I look at it when I work and and when I, you know, speak about things is, uh, well, if I think that I'm not that special, there must be, like, thousands of other people thinking that too, Um, which means, cynically, (laughs) I have a product. (laughs) uh, I can write this play and hopefully people will come see it or watch the show or whatnot. So, for me, that's kind of my approach to things. If I'm thinking it, then... I'm really not all that special.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. um, when you launched the podcast "Pretty for an Aboriginal" with Miranda Tapsell, um, which, f- as an American listening to it, is it is it's a place to learn a lot about Australia. I think um, you said that it's time to talk about all the things this country has trouble talking about: dating, sex, relationships, white race, and you did that in the play, too. You you didn't just do talk about those things in the podcast, but also in the play. But with so much humor, I mean, you're clearly a very funny writer. Is the humor essential to
3: talking about those really big issues? I personally think humor is such an incredible tool to talk about politics, because it's like a little bit of a trick. Mm-hmm. Um, you can kind of, you know, make people laugh, and then whilst they're laughing, kind of punch them in the tummy with (laughs) politics or, you know, disarm them. I mean, I don't think we would... I don't think people really change minds. I think it's really hard to change minds. I think it's a lot easier to change hearts. And this sounds really... This sounds so lame and tacky.
1: It sounds like a political candidate. Like, are you running?
3: (laughs) Um, I'd be a terrible political candidate. I have too many nude selfies floating about. (laughs) I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, oh, God. (laughs) I've been on a lot of bad dates, too, so a lot of people <laughs> probably have a grudge against me. Um, but uh, too many secrets. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, so I <laughs> kind of started thinking about all my secrets. I was like, oh, God, don't say them. Um, so, I, anyways, I am... Um, I I think, you know, with with humour, when you make people laugh, you're kind of opening up hearts, because we all laugh. And the one thing I think that is, you know, really innately human is the fact that we all laugh, and we all laugh at really different things. Like, our humour can be, you know, that can be really cultural, but it can also just be incredibly primal. Some people like slapstick, some people don't, you know? So, for myself, I think humour is just a way to talk about it, but also it's a coping mechanism. Um, My grandmother said to me, uh, and she said this on her deathbed, and she had a really terrible death, she said the the day I was the last person with her before she passed, and she was in hospital, and she said to me, "What can you do if you don't laugh?" and she said that my, my entire life going up, and so you know I always think in in the most dire of circumstances when things are really tough, what can you do if you you can't laugh you know, and what's the point of living if you can't laugh like oh that sounds really bleak, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's you know but it's 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 our light, it's our brightness, and it's our hope so for myself, being able to talk about things with laughter is, is, is a gift to be able to do and just to be able to survive. Um, and that's why I, I, I find it a lot easier to talk about. Laughter. Are there special considerations that you
1: take or do you find it's hard to joke about these kinds of issues without crossing the line into something that somebody might find you know, offensive, or, or or has anybody ever sort of told you that your jokes were offensive?
3: Yeah, look, it's 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 an interesting one. Um, I write a lot of sketch comedy as well. I write on a lot of other people's uh, TV shows. I do, like I do a lot of comedy writing. It's my bread and butter. Um, I think what's really interesting is so often in Australia, um, and I think this is not just applicable to Australia, but um, we look at. We look at humour as, if, if I tell jokes, they're really they're political. Like, I don't really write satire, I don't really write general humour because I'm a woman. Automatically, my jokes are going to be political because I'm an Aboriginal woman. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's just... She's over there filling her own niche, right? <laughs> um, and it's kind of great in a way because it means that, like, I can say things that other people can't, which is the real competitive edge. Um, but I think... Yeah, I think you have to, you can't be afraid of of offending because not everyone's going to think the same. I think you have to be aware, you know, the whole punching, punching down, punching up culture. You don't want to make fun of people. But I think we need to really be aware of, like, this whole idea of, like, you can't laugh about this, you can't laugh about that. You know, I've, I've used blackface in sketches and sketches and so forth. Um We've never received any, you know, like a lot of Aboriginal people have loved those sketches because we're making fun of blackface and trying to dissect why is it that white mm. people in Australia still do it and find it so acceptable and how do we let them off so easy? It's got a slightly different history here to then in the States but also a lot of similarities um, and, you know, failing isn't always, offending people isn't, uh, isn't a bad thing. You <laughs> need to learn, grow, move on. Um, and make sure you don't do it again, or if you stand by your work, you can disagree with people if you are engaging with your understanding, your knowledge, your context, your privilege and theirs as well. People have different opinions. Just because we're all diverse doesn't mean we're going to agree and we're the same person.
2: Do people get mad about the use of white men as a punchline almost or like the way that that's constructed as an identity within your plays?
3: Yes, um, so... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Who, yeah. pray tell gets mad about <laughs> no that? No hesitation.
2: <laughs> Women get mad about uh. that, I'm sure.
3: um, You know, I, with part of How to Rule the World, a lot of that play is kind of about, for myself, like the madness of white men. <laughs> I do write a, c- a lot of scenes with white men quite ridiculous. This, I guess is how I think white men behave behind closed <laughs> doors. Turns out they kind of do. Like um,
1: throwing a rugby ball back and forth like
3: in, in the back Playing a lot of sports yeah. and drinking <laughs> a lot of scotch um, and really into suits. <laughs> um, and power. But power being nothing more than an idea beyond that. Um, yeah, I do critique whiteness a lot and the reason I, I think that is because, um, you know, my aboriginality is in a lot of ways defined by whiteness. My... I wasn't an Aboriginal, my family weren't Aboriginal until you know Australia was colonised and they were called Aboriginal. That's not <laughs> to say that we don't have a culture. That's to say the way in which the space we're given to identify is very much constructed by like a white colonial patriarch lens. So I think so often we define and try and articulate our ad- identities as I'm a woman, I'm a feminist, I'm a, a queer person, I'm an Aboriginal person and, and our empowerment comes from having space to articulate that as opposed to actually constructing why we think that's our empowerment. Um, if that makes any sense. Um, I think about this time, I, m- this journalist did an interview on a profile of myself and we we took him out to my family's home where I grew up and um, he was really lovely and wanted to just get um, my dad's tribal name right. And so he's like, so, you know, Raymond, what may I ask where your people are from? And my dad's like, well, who are my people? <laughs> uh where do you think I'm from? <laughs> I don't know where I'm from. I'm just Jack. I'm just Raymond. I was, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, Dad, just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> These poor guys being so earnest. But it's this idea of, of deconstructing how you put together your own history and the ways in which you know and value yourself. So I, for, for myself, deconstructing what white masculinity is... Um, and my relationship to that is, is really important. And, yeah, it's really, it's interesting. I get called Aboriginal all the time. And we do our welcome to countries, our acknowledgement of countries. Um, you know, whenever I'm introduced, I'm, uh, I, I often get described as a proud Aboriginal, Gamilaroi and Torres Strait Islander woman. Um, when I do photographs of me the first few years of my career, they'd always have me, you know, looking up to the stars. Right <laughs> <laughs> male photographers Mystical. being like, look like the future's ahead of you. <laughs> um. Uh, But whenever I mention white, like if someone's a white male, you articulate whiteness, you, you mention their identity, it's, you know, all of a sudden you're the racist, you're the person who's discriminating against them because articulating their identity is a form of discrimination to them. And I think that's because being neutral and being invisible is the greatest privilege one can have. So I think it's really important to deconstruct that. Sorry for ranting. (laughs) No, that's great. Now I feel a little bad
0: because my question, I feel maybe it's not on this level of profundity, but when I was researching your life and your work, I became obsessed with Kiki and Kitty because the notion of a show about a woman and a talking... I know I could have looked it up, but I I wanted you to describe for our American listeners was it really a show about a woman's talking vagina? And if so, is there nothing you can't show on Australian
3: television? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, yeah, that's a really good question. Maybe, someone needs <laughs> Find to, maybe this, you know, this, uh, <laughs> my ABC, we need to get rid of it. Clearly, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm taking advantage. Um, no, I. Uh, um, so I, I was writing, it was when I was writing the first season of Black Comedy and um, I was doing a Christmas video for this uh, women's uh, charity, uh, like a Christmas video, uh, to say, you know, Merry Christmas. And I was really tired. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't really want to do this video. Um, like, I don't want to have to put makeup on and, like, set up my f- like my, my laptop and put a really bright light on my face so I look, you know, better. Um, <laughs> it's just a lot of work. So I was <laughs> said to my friend who ended up playing my vagina in the show, <laughs> me, oh, in hair. I've got this idea, why don't, why don't I go, hey, I'm Nikia Louie, and then you come out and go... And I'm Nakia's vagina. <laughs> and then you say the Christmas message. <laughs> and then I don't have to do it. And then I got obsessed with her being um, my virgin, which is, I don't know if you've seen the YouTube clip, my virgin. If you haven't, go watch it. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and so uh, that's kind of how this I, I started thinking about that because, um, you know, I was going through kind of my own like little like sexual empowerment revolution thing and um, like I'm gonna you know lean into like black mediocrity really is what (laughs) I was doing. No black excellence (laughs) at that point in my life. (laughs) A lot of black fucking up really which should be celebrated just as much as all the other stuff. Um, And um, sorry to be so crude and um, Mm. so I was going through this you know little like you know mini sexual drug revolution period and you know like I'm gonna you know, I was like finishing up my uni degree and all that jazz, and um, so I thought, oh, if I like, what if my vagina did come to life? <laughs> what it, would it look like? And I was like, well, clearly it'd be Elaine. Um, <laughs> you know, this big beautiful woman, like fat, and she'd wear. Vest- How did she sequenced. feel about it? She loved it. Um, <laughs> she calls me. <laughs> she calls me her owner. we <laughs> 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 could. one of. Hot. It was like, um, it would be, it would be, my vagina would be fabulous <laughs> and it would be all, like whenever I have self-doubt, about anything in my life it would be they would lead me through the way and and i have to say my vagina leads me through a lot of things it's the core of my being it's my intuition it's my heart like it's all here this
1: actually i think is a vagina monologue (laughs) yeah right now yeah i know know. i'm like having a flashback to college right now
3: yeah (laughs) i did a vagina monologue when i was like in high school (laughs) i had no idea what i was doing um anyways um so I f- and I would drink martinis at the time. <laughs> I didn't have a taste for martini, you know, like martinis. Like I would be, I'd order a martini and then, like, cringe every time I drank it. I was still really into, like, like anything that was sweet. Yeah. Um, and I was like, that's who my vagina would be. And I started thinking about kind of my own experience within, you know, corporate law and who I was, you know, a few, you know, when I was in my early 20s. And um, that's how Kiki and Kitty came about, which is a, a young lady who is kind of... Um, it's it's a buddy comedy, it's a bit like Drop Dead Fred, she's at a really hard point, she goes through a sexual trauma and her vagina comes to save her and she realises that she is, like, to, in order to love herself, she has to love her vagina um, and she finds a lot of faith in herself and then quits her job as a lawyer and follows her true passion of being a ice skater. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, gets revenge on her assaulter and, yeah... Yep. I'm doing it. I should have got the press kit. Really? <laughs> no, I <laughs> have.
1: Yeah. What was the process like of getting, uh, you know, sexual violence onto TV? Was that did you experience any pushback along the way?
3: Yeah, it was really interesting. So I pitched the show to ABC. Um, Sally Riley, who's uh, the head of um, programming, scripted programming at um, ABC, our national broadcaster, who's an Aboriginal woman. Um, she's amazing. She's created so many amazing shows and has really changed what Australian television is today across the board. Um, and she's just this kind of, you know, really strong-minded Aboriginal woman. And, and we don't see that type of stuff happening, you know, um, publicly. It's very much in the background, it's changing what people see on their screens. So she called me and she's like, what do you, What would you like to do? And I said, well, I've got this idea about, it's about a girl, it's called Kiki and Kitty. It's about exactly what I said, a, a little black girl in the big world and she needs to learn to love her vagina and all of that stuff, like my little log line. And, Tell so he went, I love it. Got on the phone with a producer, uh, Liz Watts, and um <laughs> I was like, Liz, Nikia's got this show about a talking vagina, wanna come produce it? Liz has done a lot of really like prestige <laughs> drama, <laughs> like Animal Kingdom, you know, was a show, like a movie she produced, um, and uh she produced it for me and it uh, was commissioned really quickly and I was really it was uh, a real kind of easy process like that. Um but then we started getting other funders on board, and that's when it became a little bit tricky. So, along the way, women thought it was hilarious, you know, loved the idea, um, didn't really have, like, questions about how the world works or what the world was, but, you know, didn't... The the, the plot of her and her getting drunk and her, um, her colleague kind of taking... or attempting to take advantage of her whilst being drunk... Um, uh, didn't you know? I, I think, unfortunately, it's it's really common that happening um, to to young women, or um, well not just young women, to women, um, or to people. Uh, it was when we got funders involved, a lot of them being head of networks, head of departments, commissioning editors, in high positions. A, a lot of those positions occupied by white, you know, straights as white men started freaking out. And it was really quite a na- like a difficult process to navigate. Um, I remember I was stuck in Hawaii. My mum got a bit ill there, like stuck in Hawaii. sounds really good. it was. <laughs> um, was we in Hawaii, and I was about two weeks from going into pre-production, and I got this huge amount of notes from one of the EPs. who must have just had like a little bit of a freak out himself, just being like, "I don't know if we should uh, I don't know if we should have this sexual violence in it. It's a bit taboo." You know? Um, he also had questions about... He had a whole heap of thoughts about Nietzsche and the vagina. <laughs> oh, my um, God.
1: <laughs> That's exactly what every woman needs, is, like, a man that re- equating her vagina to something yeah. Nietzsche said. I know. And
3: also, yeah, it's like, great. I'm gl- really glad you, like, did first-year philosophy and, like, <laughs> my vagina has resonance with you now. But, like, <laughs> it was... Yeah, but it, was, it, was, it, re- it was a real pushback, though. And, um, like, it was very... It was a bit scary and so... I, I was there, and it was it was bizarre. I'm in Hawaii. My mum's in a hospital where The Descendants was filmed. It's a really nice hospital, actually. Thank <laughs> God for health insurance. <laughs> and around the world, it was when all the marches were happening against Trump, all the women's wow. marches. And I was having this conversation, this conference call at, like, three in the morning, <laughs> and I'm sitting on the balcony. There's this tiki bar playing downstairs. And I just had had it, and I just kind of said to him, Number one, Australia, this is, like, we are known for our dark humour. It's what I love about being Australian, to be honest, is you look at things like Chopper, Animal Kingdom, like, we have so much dark humour, like, actual violent humour, except it's done by men. We don't question that. We, we laugh at that. We embrace that. We go, that is our culture. Second of all... There are millions of women marching around the world because of sexual harassment, really blatant sexual harassment, that we found commonality, that we have a diaspora. You think that we are defined by our trauma? You think that that we don't live lives and laugh? No, we fight against it and we continue to live. So you need to kind of wake up to yourself because this is a taboo for you. But it's because you don't experience it. We all have to live it. So maybe instead of making it a taboo, just listen and it won't be Mm. that big of an issue.
2: Would you ever do a show about a talking penis or do you feel like the market's oversaturated?
3: (laughs) 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 No. Yeah, I, I know of no shows. Maybe, m- maybe a show where people play with their penis. <laughs> <in> the <middle. laughs> Puppets. Has anyone ever done that? Oh,
1: uh, excellent idea. I wouldn't want to culturally appropriate the like, penis culture personally. <laughs> 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 um, I think we have time for
0: one more question. He's got a burning one. Mm. So th- I just asked a dumb one, now I'm going to ask, ask a heavier one. So one of the themes of, your, of how to rule the world is the possibility of treaty... Uh, with Aboriginal people, do you, I mean do you think that there will be will that treaty happen anytime soon? Is that something that's a, a realistic outcome in the
3: relatively immediate future? I hope so. I personally would really like to see a treaty. I had the privilege of um, being I, I did a, we have a news panel show here called q and a um, and stands for questions and answers. <laughs> answers? <laughs> <Anthers>. I was <laughs> like, huh, oh. answers. My one line, I stuffed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I went on the, we had, uh, the Uluru Statement last year and, um, that was basically, there were all these consultations around Australia with different Aboriginal communities and groups, um, at a really grassroots level, uh, talking about how do we, what do we implement going forward in the future, um. One of the propositions wasn't a treaty out of that. Um, It was a voice to parliament within the constitution. Um, So so Aboriginal voices can't get removed from from government, which they can, and we've seen that happen numerous times within Australian governments where we've had an Aboriginal body and it's been dismantled or just completely erased when a new uh, Prime Minister or a new party comes in. so there was a multitude of things, and the other part of that, which was really moving, which was a Makarata. it's was a truth-telling, a truth and forgiveness uh, process, which is quite similar to what happened in South Africa mm. after, um, after after apartheid. And that was just talking about like having a truthful conversations about what happened in Australia, genocide, the mass removal, the dispossession of land, um, and 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 forgiving. Like a big part of that is is forgiveness and reconciliation. Unfortunately, it was the day we did Q&A, that, and that was the day it all kind of happened backstage, it was over. We're going on to that panel knowing that it was over. It was actually, I get really emotional thinking about it. Mm. Because even though, you know, for myself, as an Aboriginal person and as, as an artist, I quite often talk in these weird esoterical, ideological ideas, which are really impractical. <laughs> That's why I'm an artist and not a politician. <laughs> but, you know, so many Aboriginal people gave their time Know, Aboriginal people have been protesting since first settlement and there's records of that for us to have a voice you know um, the very uh, anyway so th- that, that protest has been happening for so long and basically in my opinion what happened was because we dared we were given this this narrative of because we dared to ask for too much we, doomed ourselves to fail and I think that's what constantly happens to marginalised people and I think it's a really significant issue and symbolic within Australia with First Nations people is this idea of asking for too much we should never be able to ask for too much when what we're asking for is basically about equality allowing other people to have hope and space in this country Um, I do I mean we're looking at state-based treaties Australia's the only kind of uh, like UK colonised type of country that doesn't have a treaty with its First Nations people. Victoria's having those conversations at the moment about having a state-based treaty. Um, it's complicated, though, because what often so happens is that treaty, it's an agreement between two sovereign bodies. Within Australia, that the people who get to dictate the terms of the treaty tend to be the government. And so, what you have is a lot of communities. I mean, I can't speak for Victorian people. I'm not from that area, but a lot of people feeling like they're not being listened to, that they're having to come a certain that we'll only get a treaty if we're doing it on your rules. Mm. Um, but at this point, you know, uh, a national treaty that basically acknowledges Aboriginal Aboriginal people are sovereign, that acknowledges as, acknowledges us as a nation prior to colonisation. I think that that is so incredibly important to who we are as a country because this has always been a diverse country. There has always been diversity. There's been people from all around the world. Um, There's always been communities here. There's been nations. Australia wasn't this country that was cultivated by the British we weren't you know colonized and then it's a gift that we got to you know have this community we have it was built by aboriginal people it was built by diverse people it was built by people who didn't have the vote it was built by all these people who sat outside of that idea of power and those people who now still get to dictate the treaty so i think if we have a treaty what we're saying as a symbolic level and hopefully that symbolism will have some effect in our community community is that number one culture is no longer like, history is no longer part of a culture war. Aboriginal people were here. Let's stop debating that. Um, and that it opens up the space of what Australia is and what we can be by saying this is a country that is always... That that, that this idea of, of it being a white country, of it being a male country, of it being a colonial, patrial, patriarchal type of country, that it never was that. And hopefully, I, f- I think, hope like, I hope that treaty might be able to do that. It seems like we're getting closer... If maybe we with a new government, we've got a lot of Aboriginal people in government at the moment. Pat Dodson with the Labor Party, for one. Um, quite a few Aboriginal people with the Labor Party. Not saying you should vote Labor. Um, <laughs> but it's really, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I go between myself, Labor, and the Greens. I am not meant to talk about that stuff. But um, myself, you know, if, if, if. Labor were to get in, there's a possibility we might actually have an Aboriginal person who's the minister for Aboriginal people. (laughs) That would be amazing. (laughs) So, So practically just like that, we might have a shot. Yeah, well...
1: Thank you so much, thank Nikki. You. Thank, you thank, you you oh, no, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you. I thank you. haven't.
3: I don't talk to people all week just <laughs> <off> I'm <his> just <laughs> So I'm like, oh my god, friends! So thank <laughs> yeah. you for having thank me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming. We so
0: appreciate it. Great. Thank cool. you.
3: Thank, thank you. Woo!
1: <laughs> all right, cancel culture. Ooh. So generally, when we're talking about cancel culture, we're talking about the ability or or perceived ability of lay people on social media and on blogs and elsewhere to uh, sort of demand personal and professional consequences for people who have done something problematic. The young adult fiction world is currently uh, riled up over a few cancellations of authors who uh, have pulled their books over publications or pulled their books from publications after people said things about them, Noreen, what's been going on?
2: Sure, well, um, in the YA world specifically, there is uh, a first time author named Kosoko Jackson, who had written a book called A Place for Wolves. What's interesting about him is that he was, until recently, or maybe still is, employed as a sensitivity reader, which Mm. is a job very specific to, as I understand it, very specific to the YA book publishing world. So he's someone who, he is black and he's gay, and so he would sort of read uh, novels pre-publication and say, hey, you might want to watch out for this or that. This could offend people. This could be taken the wrong way. Um, He set his novel in... um, the Kosovo War. Um, he is not uh, from that part of the world, but he sort of imaginatively, you know, placed the character there. And um, he got in a ton of trouble for writing a Muslim character when he wasn't Muslim, for um, you know, centering—this uh, is not my phrase—but centering or privileging um, an American during this conflict. Um, and so he pulled the book himself. He self-canceled uh, because he thought it would be better than to be canceled on Twitter. Um, and then you know, YA is sort of a niche uh, kind of world where this happens a lot. But then you see this happening. Um, you know, you see Twitter campaigns uh, to my mind that are um, addressing more serious subjects like R. Kelly or Michael Jackson. You know, should their music be quote unquote canceled? Um, so it's actually both a niche thing that's happening mm-hmm. in our culture and like a huge thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Like how much power should people have to sort of say? Um, you know, let's not consume this product. And how much power do people actually have, right? Like, so you see, you see with something like a YA book, you see these things being pulled, you see the reviews, um, you know, coming in and sort of tanking something before it's published, but then with something like Michael Jackson, I, you know, I wonder, you know, no matter how much you think might it be um, upset about about the, you uh, the very clear indications that he abused children—like you can't cancel Michael Jackson—I don't think.
1: Yeah, I—it's this um, "ya" thing really like punched me in the gut because the two people who have pulled their own books were both people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just made me think like the the people who are most likely to self-cancel or be canceled are the people who are listening and not the actual people who are publishing like the worst stuff who would not care if you know some progressive young readers on twitter were saying like oh the thing you wrote was racist it's actually people who are trying not to be and who are listening um and so i'm like what is like what's being accomplished here i like remember as a kid reading books even though i i read that uh more than half of YA books are read by adults. So I think it's a little bit of like concern trolling going on in terms of like protecting kids from these bad ideas. But I do remember there being a lot of books that would take some sort of um, like historical moment or event or injustice and introduce a kid to it through a character who was like them. So for me, that would be like, a young white American, you know, and kids have like a very narrow worldview sometimes. And so that's like, oh, I'm exploring the Kosovo war through the eyes of someone who's like me. I don't think that in particular is
0: a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. What do you think, June? I I do find these situations different. The the YA thing feels hard because it is, um, it's not just when you're making your own decision. Like the whole idea that you know, in, in the States, for example, there's this company, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Apparently, people think its chicken sandwiches are amazing. I'm like this myself.
1: Have you well, they're they're eaten good. Chick-fil-A? I've, well, yeah.
0: I've, I've only had it because somebody actually bought it at at our office. They brought it in for our. office. I hour, hope like you said something. I did, but then I was like, well, it's here. They've already paid for it. I'll taste it. Anyway, <laughs> tell um, the people why we oh, yeah.
1: specifically, as queer people, should not be eating Chick-fil-A. Yes,
0: well, so they are... I mean, first, it's a very Christian company that in itself is not a problem. That would not be a reason to boycott it, but they, the CEO and the the company as a whole has made some very homophobic statements about, uh, marriage equality. And
1: they've given money to yeah. anti-gay groups. Yeah. I don't know why I'm getting that at You <laughs> <laughs> so
2: You hate it! Okay, but wait. Wait, you <laughs> you just you use the word boycott, though. Yeah. That's what's interesting to me, yeah. is that I think yeah. cancel culture has a very specific connotation, and it's somewhat pejorative, right? When we say yeah. we're boycotting someone yeah. or something, we're taking yeah. a moral stand. Yeah, when we say cancel culture, people think, oh, the online mobs with their pitchforks being silly about identity politics. Mm. Right,
0: exactly. Because, I, I mean, it just seems such an obvious thing that if something offends your personal values, it makes perfect sense to not patronize that company, to not eat those chicken sandwiches, to even perhaps encourage people who share your values to not eat those chicken sandwiches. But for people who've maybe never tasted a chicken sandwich, to you know take a toot and, and like pile on and then make it so that other people can't eat those chicken sandwiches.
2: See, I take I'm issue with confused. that analogy. Yeah, let's use a different example. Because <laughs>
0: I think there's a
1: difference between, like, keeping a piece of art from being yes. put yes. into the world. Yes. Especially some of the people haven't even read the books yet. Yeah. And so yeah. a lot of them were quotes taken out of context. Yeah. In one of the situations, it was like the book was about, uh, like supernatural world where there's werewolves and fairies and whatever, and the human being is taught that werewolves and fairies are bad, and so it's like, she's racist, pretty much. But then she learns over the course of book that racism is bad, and like werewolves and fairies are great, and she joins their team. But people have pulled quotes out of context from the racist part of the book, uh, like that kids, even the slowest child mind, would be able to be like, huh, this book is telling me that that's not the right way to think, you know? There's a difference between that and keeping money from being funneled to yes. an organization that gives money to like an ex-gay ministry.
0: Yeah, no, totally.
1: Or to the estate of Michael Jackson, which is yes. currently, you know, smearing
2: the men who are accusing Michael Jackson of sexual assault. Or R. Kelly, who you know is a living, breathing right. artist. I mean, this is what's frustrating. This goes back to what you said about you know, it's the people who self-cancel or the are people of color. It's like I feel like it, cancellation is only successful when the stakes are very low, Yeah, when it's a big corporation, when it's a big person. It so rarely actually happens that people, um, people who care very deeply about these things are able to sort of eat into the bottom line. Like I, I don't know if Chick-fil-A has been at all affected by this, right. I doubt that
0: it has. Well yeah, because there are then people who want to make a point.
2: Yeah. Maybe.
1: By going there. Even yeah. like twice as much as before. It's like blasting, like <laughs> I believe I
2: can fly while eating your chalet. <laughs> <A.
1: laughs> yep.
2: Reading your problematic <laughs> YA book.
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> but, and then the other thing about in the, the specifics of the YA world that there have been other books where there has been this similar kind of pre-publication kerfuffle. And if the person or the publisher holds out and publishes it anyway often these books are very successful it's just if you allow your like it depends on how you see it right if you listen to the voices who are you know pointing out your mistakes maybe you pull it if you're just like these people haven't even read it let's just plow through it you know a book is a very difficult and time consuming thing to write you can't just you know put another one out tomorrow because that one just didn't work out yeah so the, the YA situation seems particularly f- fraught.
2: Well, what I think is interesting about the YA situation is that it's actually adults driving it. It's adults Absolutely. on Twitter. Um, and from some of our reading, it seemed as if the actual target audience for the book, teenagers, are like, no, 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 let's read the book and then decide, let's not just pile on, which um, I think might be an interesting generational shift that we're mm-hmm. about to see happen. Yeah,
1: but I also wonder, I mean, um, just based on what little... Knowledge I have of the teenage Twitter sphere, which is minimal but not (laughs) non existent. I feel like sometimes teenagers, especially like progressive minded teenagers, are also um, in a mode where they're like testing out morals to be like, oh, that thing is bad, like, I've heard and read things that tell me that that thing is bad, so I'm going to exercise, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or experiment with exercising my power by saying that thing is bad and and people shouldn't read that or that author shouldn't publish that book.
0: Right, and that actually feels, you know, devoid of the particular context, that feels like a good thing of saying, you know, again, living your values, shouting out your values, trying to persuade, advocating, those are really positive things, but yeah yeah do you guys ever get annoyed by
2: cancel culture on twitter personally i mean i always think like there but for the grace
1: of goddess (laughs) go i like i you know as as hard as i try to not be bad like uh, i also sometimes tweet at three in the morning and like (laughs) who knows what sorts of things i or like taken out of context from my brain things will like pop out and, and I could can be
2: canceled at a moment's notice. Well, I think that's what bugs people about it, is that it, it's like such tiny things sometimes that can t- can be taken out of context that it doesn't feel like, okay, like Chick-fil-A, this is a company right. and a person with a pattern of hateful behavior versus someone who like says something a little bit wrong on Twitter or like mm. maybe just misunderstood. Yeah,
0: something. and I feel like when I've been you know piled onto, I, my response, even though I know I'm being defensive, is to say, you know, I'm so flawed. But this you're wrong on this one. <laughs> this one I was okay. You didn't read it, or you didn't read it with the right tone, or you don't know me. And yeah, you don't know me. Yeah. Um, but I just can't tell if that's what people always think or if actually I was I'm a bad person. You yeah. were right. <laughs>
2: Um, I'll tweet at June and let her know. (laughs) Right, I know. It's like between
1: everyone in this room, we could probably get an exhaustive account of your Twitter feed and to tell you if you've ever said anything problematic. (laughs) Um, Should we move on to our recommendations? Let's. Uh, Well, mine is sort of about canceling, so maybe I'll go first. So I don't know if you all have seen the new um, HBO documentary, Leaving Neverland. It's about Michael Jackson, lots of nods in the room. Um, Slate ran uh, what I think was a really fantastic package on the documentary. We put a lot of time and resources into it, like weeks before it came out. A lot of people watched it. Um, the lead essay of the package was um, by a guy, Carl Wilson. And um, the title, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's basically Why It's Too Late to Cancel Michael Jackson um, and sort of the inefficacy of cancel culture as it pertains to a legend like him whose music is everywhere. Whose, whose music's tentacles are in every song that is popular now. Um, and also who is dead and whose estate is extremely wealthy and powerful and who still has a ton of diehard fans. Um, but the piece, it's not hopeless. Um, it's very searching and it, it talks about how we can still t- make meaning of this abuse or alleged abuse um, in terms of what it means about child stardom and um, how, how children get put into um, places where they're at risk of exploitation. And now to recommend something not slate related because I kind of felt like I was, you know, wanking off just then. Um, on the plane ride here, I watched The Favourite. <laughs> you guys seen it? Oh my god, it's so good. its uh, I consider it like one of the best movies I've seen. Uh, I was like aroused and disturbed and like chilled on to a the bone. On the trans-Pacific airplane ride. Yeah, I feel bad for the people in my row. I was like... <gasps> like constantly making audible noises. Um, But if you haven't seen it yet, make a point of seeing it, Rachel Weiss. (laughs) (laughs) Chef's kiss.
2: That wasn't available on my plane. (laughs) (laughs) The people around you, thank you. (laughs) Um, I watched Molly's Game, which was not gonna be my recommendation, but if no one... Uh, if anyone has not seen that, I would recommend it. Particularly, it's a plain movie. It's a, mm-hmm. a story of a uh, heist. Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain as like a, a like a poker um, ringleader kind of mall kind of person. It's great. Um, anyway, my real recommendation is annoying because it's not out until this summer. But well, I think i you bragging <laughs> a little bit about you have like advanced notice of something? Uh, it's a book. Uh, yes, I guess I
0: am. I guess I'm <laughs> a jerk.
2: Um, it's a book called Three Women by Lisa Tadeo, um, And it's sort of a deep anthropological look at the um, sex, l- sex lives of three women in America um, of different ages. Uh, one of them lives on the East Coast. Two of them live in the Midwest and it's written like a novel, essentially. It's deeply reported. She worked on it for eight years, um, and it reads like a novel. Um, and I'm saying it now because I want everyone to pre-order it, and I want to I make <laughs> you guys uh, talk about All it. Right. Sounds show. really good. Um, but it's sort of like, um, if, if anyone here has read uh, the Gay Talese book, Thy Neighbor's Wife, it's sort of an updated version of that for 2019. Um, probably the most compelling of the three women's t- stories is a... Young woman named Maggie, who when she was seventeen had an affair with her um, high school teacher, and several years later decided to go to the police. And and oh, wow. that the fallout from that um, is uh, is is covered in the book and is really compelling and makes you think about a lot of things in different ways. So, Three Women by Lisa Sadeo and and Molly's Game, which is available on
0: Delta Flight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since everybody's starting with their plane (laughs) plane watching, I watched Miss Sherlock, which is uh, a Japanese show, which I loved because it was the uh, Sherlock-Watson relationship, but they're both women. Miss Sherlock, that might have been the tip-off. But the best part was how they managed to... Uh, make the the sidekick's name because um, her first name was Watto, so she was Watto-san. So, uh, (laughs) um, so my recommendation is a book that I hope will be available in Australia. It is uh, just out in America. It's called When Brooklyn Was Queer by Hugh Ryan. Um, who is going to be on the next episode of Outward, which everybody should also be listening to, the Slate's LGBTQ podcast. And it's a really beautifully written and really deeply researched history of LGBTQ people in Brooklyn, which, of course, is where I live, and so there's an extra element of interest. But it's just a really... It's also a really fascinating book um, because it's very good at the kind of construction of... Those identities. Um, I mean, because we all know that, like, there have always been queer people, but they weren't. They didn't always even maybe see themselves a certain way. You know, or even know that was an identity, versus like a thing you do. Yeah, and it's he's really good on that, and it's just a really fantastic book. So, when Brooklyn was queer by Hugh Ryan, I second that recommendation. All
1: right. Is it sexist who has a question? You
0: know you want to. I think we,
1: it looks like somebody's maybe bringing a mic up.
0: Yes, indeed. Is, oh, here's one. Oh, yeah, right up front. Here we come, here we come. Mm -hmm. Sorry, something that just came up when we were um, bonding before the the show. (laughs) But is it sexist that the women amongst us didn't think to invite our husbands or male partners to a show called, to an event called All About Women? Now, did you not think to, or did you kind of want to have some women time? <laughs> <laughs> little from column A, little yeah, from right. column A. all right. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to say, like, I'm always, I'm always, always very conflicted. I'm, I'm, I can't help making eye contact with the uh, apparently men in the audience here, because, um, like, I always feel a bit bad, because, you know, on these shows, like, we're all going to start talking about men, 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 men. And I, like, I don't feel bad about it at all in fact i what
1: i think is sexist is a lot of times at events like this people will take time to be like thank you to the men in the room or then sorry for the thing we just said (laughs) and also like you know thank you to the men in the room for coming but all but like you're at an event where people are talking about women and feminism and i don't know like i uh i don't think it's sexist at all because you know they could have Found it on their own accord if they would have wanted yeah, to.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it's gendered, but uh, don't lose any sleep over it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but make sure you tell him what he missed. <laughs>
2: Anyone else?
0: Is it sexist? Oh, here's one. Here's Got one. Another one. Thank you. Front row is. I know front row game. is popping. <laughs> Come on, row five.
4: <laughs> so you talked early in the show about how romantic comedies seem to be like. A little bit, like not quite fresh on new plots and new ideas, um, and something I've heard discussed recently. Um, unfortunately, I don't read a lot of like romantic fiction, but um, a lot of people saying that romance, in terms of adaptations compared to other types of novels, is actually way behind. Mm-hmm. And speculating that that might be because of the way that we kind of discount female romance writers and the fact that it's a very women-centred genre about. Women's lives and centered on women's concerns. So, is it sexist?
0: So you mean like the movies get based on novels, but yeah, romantic comedies so are kind of we original have all scripts, sorts
4: of like especially like fantasy and science fiction at the moment. Comic book like movies. Constant adaptation news, even if it's yep. just things being optioned, whereas yep. like a lot of very popular romance novels are not even on the agenda in terms yeah. of adaptations.
0: If that is really interesting. I I mean, is it sexist?
2: Well, if. If after the success of Fifty Shades of Grey that's not happening, I would say that is probably sexist and probably has to, something to do with who's, you know, who's like even reading stuff mm. to be adapted, who's who's signing that. Because that I mean that was a huge franchise. Same with Twilight, which yeah. you know that's like more of a YA thing than a romance thing. Um, but it seems as if like if you're actually just looking at the numbers, you should go there.
1: Yeah, I think that's extremely sexist, especially when you consider the sort of Low bar for quality that <laughs> other adaptations must meet. Um, yeah, sexist. Should we do a numerical score
0: for these or just a thumbs up, thumbs down? Oh, I do an up down. up and down it's because that's really great for radio, also
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thumbs up, sex. Or yeah,
1: should we not say even which way our thumbs are going? (laughs) Only the audience gets to know. (laughs) There should be like a jury where we have to reach consensus.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm
1: sure we have a lot of time. (laughs) I'm saying thumbs up. Thank you. Great question. Yes.
0: Oh, there's one back there. Make him run, make him run.
2: Thanks so much for coming. Okay. Um, is it sexist that Gail King was applauded for her poise um, in the face of a scary looking R. Kelly?
0: I mean, that was such a strong image, though, when she was sat so poised and so calm, and he kind of appeared to be as if he was gonna fly. I mean, he looked like he was taken up. <laughs> <laughs> um, Not the time to make that joke, June. Um,
1: but it's canceled. Wait, so is the question that you think a man would
2: not have been applauded? I think a man would have been applauded. Probably the language around it would have been different. Like he would have been, you know, called. I, I, I. I think it would have just been characterized a little bit differently, but certainly I think anyone remaining calm as an interviewer in that situation would be um, celebrated. I think it's
1: also that it's different for a woman to be in that situation interviewing an you know, accused serial sexual abuser mm-hmm. versus a man. Like I don't think R. Kelly would have treated a male interviewer in that same way. Um, yeah. I personally felt like it annoyed me that she was so calm and that she gave him that interview. I think that's a, kind of an unpopular opinion, but I feel like R. Kelly should not be able to hold forth on a television show like that. No, Well, he didn't come out of it looking good. <laughs> that's, that's very true. But I think for maybe his fans, and he also has a lot of diehard fans, might have watched it and been like, yeah, good for him. You know, He stood up for himself. Is there anyone? Oh, the front row, man. Front row is. (laughs) Your socks are awesome. Yeah.
4: Um, I don't know if this one fully makes sense because it's kind of just come into my head unformed, but there's a bit of a stereotype in Australia that uh, gay men are wealthy and friendly and lesbian women are poor and angry. (laughs) (laughs) Is that sexist?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave it to you guys, but yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Although I will say I don't know what the stats are in Australia, but I know in the States it is true that um gay men make more than the average or gay couples. Gay male couples make more than heterosexual couples and uh, <laughs> gay gay <laughs> women make less than the average heterosexual couple and that's like in part because of career choices and part because of sexism and uh and all you know, childcare and whatever. Um so I want to say there's like 1% of
0: truth to that stereotype, but the rest is sexism. Mm. Also, You have a lot to be angry about, though. Exactly. And often it's good to give the impression that you're angry so that you won't be bugged, you know? So <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder also if gay men
1: find that stereotype as distasteful as, for example, I do. I, I've, actually, um, oh, I've yeah.
4: actually asked a couple of my friends... Sort of oh, you thing.
1: came prepared yeah. it, with, with data. I
4: have asked in the past some of my friends, like, is it annoying that people just always assume because you're gay that you want to dance and want to hang out <laughs> and want to make friends? And they're like, I mean, I kind of do want to do all these
1: things. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it nice to be a gay man? Um, that was a great question. Thank yeah. you.
0: It looks like people have to leave, and I don't want to make people... Um, <laughs> Try and do it quietly. So thank you so much for coming. We're so happy to have been here and invited here, and it's awesome to see all your faces.
1: I do have a few official people I would oh, like thank to you. thank, yes. too. Um, first of all, I just want to thank the All About Women Festival for having us. This was amazing. Thank you to Nakia Louie, our producer Danielle Hewitt, who's here with us, our production assistant Alex Barish, Faith Smith, and Kirsten Holtz-Naim, who are events people at Slade who set this all up. And thank you, our incredible audience, for coming. This means a lot to us. So for Noreen Malone and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotterucci. Thank you for listening.